The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about the state of COVID in the United States, other frightening illnesses, and how healthcare stocks have been performing. My guest is Josh Nathan Kazis, Barron's healthcare reporter. Welcome, Josh, and glad to be back with you on Barron's Live. Good to talk to you. So the last time I hosted a call with you, we were worried about the advent of winter and what it would mean for the spread of COVID. It's now officially spring. How do things stand now? Yeah, you know, I mean, we've been we've been opening these these calls for a long time with, you know, conversations about COVID statistics and where we are. And I wonder if it's sort of time to reframe that. I mean, we have less than a month to go before the end of the U.S. government's um, COVID emergency. And everything is looking not so bad right now. You know, cases are pretty low. Deaths are, I mean, deaths are higher. It's still a large number in an absolute um, uh, sense, but it is lower than it's been. And um, things seem to be trending in the right direction. So uh, the U.S. is averaging 283 deaths per day right now, which is at the low end of the range where that number has been hovering since the end of the Omicron wave uh, early in 2022. It's still, you know, quite a number, but but it is, um, you know, lower than it's been. The number of people hospitalized is down pretty sharply, down 14% in the last two weeks. Right now, it's like in the, it's averaging like 22,000. I mean, it was like 50,000 in January. Um, and cases are also down. Um, and we're, we still, you know, that, that variant we were talking about, uh, XBB.1.5, that sort of exploded across the country in December and I think had people pretty worried um, it, it accounts for virtually all cases, um, but, uh, you know, it, it seems like right now things are, are not looking too bad on the COVID front in a was, national sense. Was the uh, was the winter as bad as people thought it would be? Or, I mean, I know those numbers have were, were considerably higher. But, yeah, it, seem, uh, it seems like, you know, we had a pretty bad, you know, I mean, things were not great during parts of the fall. But uh, I don't think that the, the big concerns that XVB.1.5 would lead to some major explosion were borne out. And, and I think that's pretty good. And it seems interesting that uh, we haven't had a new variant uh, then in kind of the uh, the last uh, three months or so. It's uh, still dominated by this XBB. Yeah, although I remember, I mean, uh, what was it? BA5 was dominant for like three or four months yeah. prior to that. So it seems to be how the cycles go. So uh, we could be due for a new variant. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, I... I... <laughs> I am not an epidemiologist. I have no idea. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Let's hope not. Um, and, and, and I know you said that, you know, maybe it's time to change, uh, um, you know, how we start these calls, but there's still a lot that's happening uh, on COVID. Um, I wanted to start with Paxlovid. That's uh, Pfizer's COVID antiviral. Uh, the FDA had a meeting to discuss the drug. What's going on there? Yeah, so as you may recall, that this is the antiviral that Pfizer introduced. It's been available under accelerated approval that's sort of the, um, I'm sorry, not accelerated approval, under the emergency use authorization, <laughs> mixing up my arcane FDA terms here, under emergency use authorization, which is the way in which a lot of these vaccines and therapeutics got approved during the COVID emergency. Um, but uh, Pfizer has asked for full approval. There was a bit of a delay as the FDA waited for some more data. 
um, they had a hearing of their uh, advisory committee, the, the FDA's advisory committee, um, last week. And the advisors voted 16 to 1 that the data supports um, the safety and effectiveness of Paxlovid in adults at high risk for progression to severe illness. That's the, the main group that this um, this pill is has been authorized in. The FDA is set to make a decision in May. They would keep the emergency use authorization for um, adolescents age 12 and up uh, mm-hmm. in certain circumstances. Um, but for adults, it would move to full approval. And that has implications for advertising and probably becomes more important for the company as we move into this you know, commercial landscape where the vaccines and therapeutics are becoming commercial products. Right. And, and this is really just a reflection of the fact that kind of COVID is expected just to stick around for a while and we're going to need these stuff, these things. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't think there's any expectation that it won't be uh, at least a seasonal issue um, for, you know, the indefinite future. And d- does it matter that one person on this panel voted no? Or is that just what you expect to see in a, any of these kind of votes? Yeah, I mean, they have robust debates. I, I, I didn't watch this particular meeting, but they have robust debates on all sorts of issues. And, um, you know, uh, I don't think, I don't know why that individual voted no, but often these votes are not unanimous. It doesn't mean that, and the other important thing to say about this is that it's not binding, right? It's the FDA's call. Um, right. They have these, in fact, there's been a, a push from the FDA to, to end the votes, to have these meetings where they bring in these expert advisors and have them discuss the questions that the FDA wants to have discussed and give input, but not to vote anymore. Um, so I don't, I, you know, we don't know if that would happen, but that is that has been a proposal from the FDA. You're going to hate me for asking this, but uh, you know, it's the kind. It seems like the kind of thing that uh, you know, with Biogen's uh, first Alzheimer's drug, where you know they approved it despite this panel. It seems like you're trying to get rid of some of that optics, perhaps, uh, when you have a panel that doesn't want something, but the FDA has a different opinion. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about the cases made for and against, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Biogen situation was certainly uh, an uncomfortable one for the agency. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I think I think from watching especially the vaccine ones over the past few years, like it's quite clear that the agency experts and, and the decision makers within the FDA like do value the feedback. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I imagine that these conversations they have internally about whether to approve or not can, uh, you know, they're the people making the decisions within the FDA are not practitioners in the field, and um, they're they're you know experts, but experts in an office in uh, wherever the FDA headquarters is uh, in, in the DC area, and um, and I think they they benefit from having input from you know leading people out there every day, you know, talking to patients and and dealing with these issues in in real life. So uh, I think that you know the the advisors definitely have an important role. I just think. There has been some questions about whether they should vote or not. And now, speaking of commercialization, Moderna has been in the news over how it wants to price uh, its vaccines. Uh, can you uh, walk us through what's been happening? Yeah, so this is the big thing yesterday. I mean, just to take a step back, I mean, people probably remember that every single COVID vaccine and therapeutic that's been administered in the U.S. since the start of the pandemic has been paid for fully by the federal government. And that's ending. Um, you know, right now, what's being used are um, doses largely purchased in agreements made last year um, uh, that are are still you know in the U.S. government. It's not a stockpile, but you know in the warehouses. Um, but those are going to run out, and the the assumption, at least for the vaccines, is that by the end of the year, second half of the year, um, people will be 
paying for vaccines in the normal way we pay for vaccines. And that's through insurers, you know, through government programs like Medicare and Medicaid and the, and the VA um, and for the uninsured, you know, out of pocket. So uh, Moderna has said that their vaccine is going to cost $130. Um, and they were called before uh, the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pension Committee, which was chaired by Bernie Sanders yesterday to defend that price. Um, you know, I, I think that the vaccine makers had a uh, something of a of a honeymoon era, uh, a honeymoon in the midst of the COVID era, right? In terms of public reception, like um, there was a period when Big Pharma was not being criticized politically in the way it had been. And this hearing, I think, was a pretty clear signal that if that wasn't over yet, it was certainly over now. Um, you know, all of the senators who spoke, for the most part, talked about, you know, how uh, great it was that this this vaccine had been produced, but they also had very tough questions about the, the pricing. Um, if you don't mind, uh, how, how does the price compare to other vaccines? So vaccine prices vary. Like the, and I, I wish I had them in front of me, I don't, but uh, like the sort of normal uh, flu vaccine that everyone gets, I think is in the $20 range. Um, there's a high efficacy flu vaccine that is used by seniors. That's more like, I believe like the $80, $90 range. I think mm-hmm. um, there are more expensive vaccines, for example, Shindrix, Shingrix, Shingrix, uh, GlaxoSmithKline's or GSK's uh, shingles vaccine is, is more than the Moderna vaccine would be, but that's sort of a specialized vaccine. Uh, I believe Pfizer has said that its commercial price would be in the same range as this Moderna uh, price range. Um, I think the main issue that that Sanders brought up is, you know, first of all, this price is about four times the price that the Moderna charged the U.S. government for the doses the government bought last year. Um, and, you know, um, Moderna did get government help in developing this vaccine. And that the specific nature of that help is contested. There was specific funding that the Moderna got from BARDA, uh, which is less than $2 billion. Um, Moderna also, you know, sold like, like $10 billion worth of vaccine to the U.S. government. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, there are also um, some claims by NIH, although, again, Moderna has contested this, this in the past, that NIH helped invent the vaccine. This this has been discussed. Uh, Moderna, I mean, NIH did have a role. Moderna, um, uh, anyway, I don't know if we need to get into the weeds of that. Yeah. But the, 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 the basic point is that um, Sanders and, and others argued that this price hike is, is too much. Um, you know, and Ben, so, sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, what's, uh, what's Moderna's argument for raising it? So, so Moderna CEO, you know, in this hearing yesterday, Stefan Mansell made a number number of points. One is that demand is to be much lower this year, so they lose economies of scale. Number two is, you know, this was packaged differently for government distribution. Number three is uh, burdens of distri- distribution. Some of them are shifted away from the government towards Moderna. The main point he said, and I thought the most interesting one, was the, the sort of wastage burden mm-hmm. um, that you need to make vastly more than you expect to sell because you don't want to come in below where the demand is. He said that if you take into account the wastage, the government paid more like $80 a dose um, for the for the doses actually administered over the past year. I'm sorry, not over the past year, since the since the fall. Got it. That's still short of the $130 that 
they are going to charge. So, you know, I, I think that um, certainly some, you know, there, there, there were fair arguments that Moderna was making about why they had to charge more on the commercial market than to, than they charge the government. But they, you know, I, I think there's still a lot of skepticism around this pricing decision. Um, can the can the Senate actually do anything um, to keep Moderna from raising the prices? That didn't seem to be under discussion. I mean, Sanders asked for a commitment to lower the price, and <laughs> Bensel did not. You know, one other thing that Bensel has said is that um, you know people with insurance won't be paying a copay, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he he also said that for the uninsured, they'll have a patient assistance program that will pay for the the vaccine. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a long history of companies setting up these patient, patient assistance, pro- assistance programs. They're often sound better than they are, and they often are really hard for people to access and really cumbersome. And a lot of the questions during the hearing were about, um, you know, how Moderna will uh, make sure that this patient assistance program is easy to access for patients and for the uninsured. And Moderna, you know, and Medcell, you know, said that they were going to do all sorts of things to make sure that people can actually access it. So that was the point, I think, that uh, the senators were quite interested in and seems like the company is focused on as well. Um, and, and the stock, though, hasn't been doing great this year, right? No, I mean, you know, none of the, we can talk about this later, but none of the larger cap uh, pharma or pharmaceutical stocks have done great this year. Moderna in particular, you know, I mean, that stock was trading at close to $400 in mid-2021. It's now down to 150 you know, part of that is uncertainty around the long-term COVID market. Uh, Moderna has a huge pipeline, a lot of very interesting stuff uh, in late stages. But, you know, um, the company uh, uh, has only one product. It's the COVID vaccine. And, you know, sales expectations for the COVID vaccine this year are quite low. Um, so, you know, the company has a little bit of a gap to bridge before any of its um, uh, subsequent products make it to the market. And uh, I think investors are trying to figure out, you know, how promising those, those products are going to be. Okay. Um, well, Josh, since COVID, it seems we've become hyper aware about uh, every virus bacteria that's out there. Um, and this week, I've been hearing a lot about a deadly fungus. Uh, what's been going on? Yes. Yes. So the, the CDC uh, rang the alarm bells on Monday, late Monday, about this fungus called uh, Candida auris. Um, they published a paper showing a very dramatic spread from 2019 to 2021 of this fungus. I think the, the, the most important thing to say here is that this is a very big problem for long-term care facilities, um, you know, for hospitals, acute care hospitals, and especially like long-term acute care hospitals. This is not necessarily something that needs to keep uh, a layperson who's not a physician um, up at night. Uh, you know, the actual numbers here of, implica- of, of people who have been harmed are, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in in the hundreds and, and low thousands, um, I think some of the headlines maybe frightened people needlessly. That, that's not to say this is not a big deal. So this is a fungus that had never been seen until 2016, at which point it was um, seen in a swab taken from a person's ear who was a patient at a Japanese hospital. It was seen in the U.S. I'm sorry, that was in 2009. Apologies. And then it, it was first seen in the U.S. in 2016. And it's 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 grown quite it's spread quite impressively since then, especially during the pandemic year. I think the the real problem here is that it's often resistant to some of the antifungal drugs that are used to treat these sorts of infections, 
And it is sometimes in rare but growing number of cases resistant to all of the antifungals. And that's pretty bad. Um, you know, it doesn't generally infect healthy people, but it can be quite deadly in, in the very ill. Um, it mostly infects people with invasive medical devices like breathing tubes and feeding tubes. But, you know, I mean, 30 to 60% of the people infected with it have died, according to the CDC. So um, this is, a you know, something that uh, hospitals and especially long-term care facilities of various types seem to pay a lot of attention to. Interestingly, the, the CDC author, um, the, the authors of the paper said that, you know, one it grew quite sharply um, from in 2021. And they said that while a lot of attention was paid to, to sort of infection control in healthcare facilities during the pandemic, it was really paid to, you know, not allowing COVID to spread. Mm -hmm. And some of that may have come at the expense of, you know, not allowing other sorts of infections to spread. So the, the reason this alarm bell was, was rung was to get healthcare workers and facilities to take this very seriously because, you know, I mean, multi-drug resistant fungus is, is not a, you know, it's a pretty, pretty frightening thing. Are, are the drug companies doing anything to try to be able to combat this? Yeah, there's a, a, a biotech called uh, Synexis that's working on a drug that can treat this. Their shares went up about 35% on Tuesday. Uh, Pfizer is working on something that is being tested in this. Um, uh, you know, there's another company that got something approved today that might be relevant, but I apologize, I don't have the name in front of me. Um, and uh, so people are aware of this, you know, the federal governments, uh, the BARDA, the, um, which, which funds uh, research into a, various areas, um, is, is offering funding for uh, programs developing drugs to deal with this. So um, it's certainly um, a matter of attention. And I think the broader problem of you know, drug-resistant infections is one that the government is quite attuned to. Um, so let's move on to scary disease number two. Um, <laughs> that's bird flu. Um, walk us through it again. Yeah, so this this is another one. This is a little bit more uh, relevant. I mean, people probably have heard about this. Um, this is this major outbreak of avian flu since last year. You know, um, nearly 60 million birds in the U.S. have been killed because uh, birds in their flock were infected. And the question now is if it's going to come back this spring. I mean, um, you know, this, this, this virus, various avian flus like have, you know, always existed. Um, the worry, one of the worries about avian flus is that they, in rare but very bad cases, they can cross over into people. This avian flu has not crossed over into people very often, um, but it is very widespread now in wild birds, especially migrating waterfowl, migratory waterfowl, geese and ducks. And um, it keeps showing up in, in chickens. It, it kills chickens very readily and it spreads very quickly. And so right now, um, you know, the main response that the government is calling for is uh, biosecurity for commercial flocks and for backyard flocks. And, um, you know, when there is an infection in the flock, they, um, they kill all of the birds in that flock very quickly. Um, you know, I, I think one of the questions had been, should people worry about the potential for um, this to move over into humans? You know, there's been a lot of attention paid to that risk. Um, uh, you know, avian flus have caused human pandemics before. Um, and there were reports late last year of the virus potentially spreading among mink at a farm in Spain. And that raised particular concerns because of the similarities between minks and humans and especially in susceptibility to similar flu viruses. 
But I, I spoke to a bunch of virologists the other week, all of whom said, look, we've been focused on this for a while. Um, we're not losing sleep. This is a problem, but it's not that much more of a problem now than it was 10 years ago. It's a risk we should be prepared for. And maybe we should be, I mean, we should be testing people and doing tests to make sure it doesn't spread. Um, but, uh, but it's not like, you know, uh, a catastrophe that's about to happen, which, uh, um, which is good news. Yeah, very good news. Um, and so the, the last one I wanted to ask you about is something called Marburg virus. Um, why is it making headlines now? Yeah, so this this is a <laughs> kind of the, the the doom and gloom segment of the podcast. It really is. Uh, so th this is this is another another one of these uh, freaky viruses. So this uh, it's been it's been sort of a frightening year for Marburg. Marburg is an Ebola-like virus, very high death rate. Um, uh, you know, doesn't spread super efficiently b between people, but uh, it is um, you know a very big deal when we have outbreaks. Uh, the World Health Organization announced the first ever Marburg outbreak in Equatorial Guinea in late February, and then the first ever Marburg outbreak in Tanzania on Tuesday. That one infected eight people. I think the thing that's worrying people is that uh, Wednesday night, the WHO gave their first update in like a month on the Equatorial Guinea situation. It's kind of, kind of bad. There had been nine cases in February in a single region. Now they have nine lab confirmed cases and 20 probable cases in total. But these cases are from three different provinces, which are not close to each other. Um, uh, WHO experts have gone to Guinea to, to help, but it's the first time to Equatorial Guinea. This is the first time this country is facing this illness. Other countries that have dealt with this in the past, you know, have a bit of um, uh, capacity to, to manage the outbreak. The WHO said that Equatorial Guinea's capacity needs to be strengthened. And, you know, I think one of the concerns here is that the provinces where this turned up are border provinces. So the um, WHO says that the risk is very high in Equatorial Guinea, high in the immediate area, and moderate in the region, and low globally. You know, I, I think it's um, uh, this is just something to keep an eye on, one of those mm. bubbling things out there. I mean, these kind of outbreaks, um, or or just the, these the, these you know fungus or viruses or uh, bacterial infections, um, it, it seems like we're hearing about them uh, more than we did before COVID. Um, what do you think is behind just the, the I guess the awareness now? Yeah, look, I mean, these things have always happened, right? I mean, you remember the the Ebola outbreak uh, with twenty fourteen fifteen. I mean, there was there was a H5N1, major H5N1 uh, outbreak among poultry in the U.S. in 2014, 2015. Um, you know, I, I, it's not it's not that there's some explosion of these incidents. I think it's just that we're more attuned to it. And we, we have, you know, as lay people, we have the vocabulary, you know, the sort of reporters who covered this stuff, the public health officials who focus on this stuff. They're doing what they always did. I, I just think that we, we have a bit more context for it, uh, maybe a bit more focus on it. And, you know, I think that the late, the, the, the aware, you know, consumer of news has such a broader vocabulary of uh, mm -hmm. epidemiology words, you know, and, and, and so much more context for understanding these things. Um, and so I think that probably raises interest a little bit and, you know, personal recent experience of uh, how viruses can impact our, our lives in a dramatic way. I think just just raises all of our awareness and makes these things that were always happening have a bigger impact as we 
you know, scan the paper on a given day. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, all right, so let's end our gloom and doom section, as, as you called it. Um, and and let, let's talk about some uh, other things that may be good news. Uh, tell me what's been happening. I'm going to mispronounce the company's name with Karen and its schizophrenia treatment. It's a, a Karuna. Karuna. Um, so they reported on Monday positive results in another second phase three trial. There's schizophrenia treatment called a CAR-XT. This is like a new type of schizophrenia drug. Um, and the idea is that it can be effective without the debilitating, sometimes debilitating side effects that older schizophrenia treatments have. Um, they, they read out a trial in August that was very positive. The data here was very similar to that trial. Um, shares of Corona jumped like 70% in August. They were up like 14% on Monday morning. But then it was sort of interesting. This a debate has set in since sort of mid-morning on Monday on this stock about interpretation of the data. Shares ended up falling 5% on Monday, 12% on Tuesday. It seems like the main endpoint of the trial was met, which is improvement on the scale that's used to measure the severity of schizophrenia symptoms. But it didn't show improvement into other scales that measure what are called negative symptoms, symptoms involving sort of an absence of normal function. And there were somewhat, I guess, higher discontinuation rates, which raised concerns about tolerability. I mean, if you read the, the analysts, the, 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 the cell site analysts here, they were all quite positive on the outcome of this trial. And they say that the, the misses on the secondary measures really shouldn't expect, shouldn't impact expectations as to what the FDA could approve this, this drug for. Um, so the analysts seem way cons less concerned about than the investors do. Um, but this is interesting to watch. Uh, Karuna is asking for approval now, so we'll see what the FDA yeah. does. And we could definitely use uh, new treatments for, uh, uh, for schizophrenia. Um, okay, and let's look at uh, what's happening with uh, insulin prices. It seems like the, the diabetics, people who need that, that insulin are gonna get some relief. Yeah, and this is, um, this has been a major political issue, right? I mean, as people may recall, the um, Inflation Reduction Act last year was signed early this year, capped the out-of-pocket pocket price for Medicare patients for insulin at $35. Um, and Biden had said at the State of the Union that he wants to extend that to commercial insurers as well. Um, apparently, they Democrats had tried to get that into the Inflation Reduction Act, Reduction Act and it got negotiated out. Um, so amidst this sort of growing political pressure, first Eli Lilly, then Novo Nordisk, then Sanofi, the three major insulin manufacturers in the U.S., all said that they were going to cap out-of-pocket prices um, for people on commercial insurance at $35. Um, and they also announced other price cuts to various in insulin products they sell. Um, you know, I think the context here is, again, the political pressure uh, from Biden, who had made very clear that this was going to be um, uh, a major goal of his, um, you know, looking forward across the year. You know, as Stat News, the uh, healthcare news site, also pointed out that Eli Lilly actually avoided having to pay a substantial rebate to Medicaid on its top insulin drug uh, called Humalog starting next year. Um, they had been, uh, there was a, it was basically like a built-in uh, penalty that they would have to pay for increasing Humalog's price faster than inflation. Now they're mm -hmm. not going to pay that. Um, so there may have been some other stuff going on here, but in general, it does seem like sort of a win, a political win uh, for the you know various politicians who are who are pushing to extend the IRA's uh, out-of-pocket cap to the whole market. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it seems like it could be a win for uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle. Um, yeah. So let's end our discussion with a look at healthcare stocks. Charles was wondering why this group, which performed so well last year, has been something of a disappointment in 2023, despite growing recession fears. What's happening? Yeah. I mean, I've been looking at, you know, big pharma. Like, if you look at um, the S&P Pharmaceuticals Industry, Industry Group, when I looked yesterday, it's down 10% on the year. You know, J&J is down 12%. Pfizer's down 20%. And even Eli Lilly, the sort of perennial favorite, uh, of the group is down 9%. And I, I think I've spoken to people about why this is happening. And I think that there are a couple of things, you know, one is uh, just some sort of broader rotation in response to, you know, the broader market environment. There's also an argument, I think that these stocks and, and these large cap pharma stocks did quite well last year, um, really one of the better performing subgroups within the S&P 500. And I, I think that, there's a sense that sort of after that, you know, after the prices ran up last year, there's a moment of sort of stepping back and looking again at some of the risks these companies are facing, you know, um, you know, for all the positive attributes, uh, you know, dividends, you know, relative insulation from, uh, you know, the broader trends in spending um, uh, there, th these companies have, problems most of them are facing patent cliffs in the near future um and most of them many of them have uh you know risky trials that can read out or whatever i mean all the the risks to, to pharma um it, it seems as though there's a moment of refocusing on some of those concerns yeah uh, one of the things i just pulled up a chart of uh xlv which is the healthcare select sector spider fund uh against the xlk which is the tech uh, version of that mm. and if you look over the last 12 months um, they're basically both in the same spot now, um, Interesting. You know, down single digits. Um, yeah. But if you look at healthcare, it's gone very, very much sideways. It's not been very volatile, whereas tech uh, has the, the range is just huge between hmm. the, the ups and the downs. Um, so I think part of this is just people gravitating towards riskier things right now. Um, right. As rates fall. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's take a few um, uh, reader questions before we finish up here. Um, we had two questions about Pfizer from Earl and for, from uh, Jim. What's the outlook for Pfizer? Um, and does this proposed acquisition of CGEN change anything? Yeah, so the the CGEN deal is a very large one. I mean, it's, um, you know, I think Pfizer's biggest acquisition since it bought Wyeth, which is when they, uh, it was a big pharma company that they bought in, like 2009 or something. Um, and, uh, you know, um, you know, CGEN, I mean, analysts really, really like CGEN. They have a really interesting um, approach to cancer involving these uh, called um, antibody drug co conjugates. Um, you know, I, I think that, as we've said a million times, like Pfizer has this approaching patent glyph. They've laid out what they're going to do about it. And a big part of that is M&A. And they seem to have accomplished the M&A. I mean, if they get the CGEN deal, that would, you know, get their projected um, uh, 2030 revenues, you know, from M&A up to the target, which I think was like 25 uh, billion or, mm -hmm. or something. Um, so, you know, I think there's some questions about whether they overpaid for CGEN. I mean, they seem to have paid more than Mark was willing to, which was... Uh, you know, Merck was in negotiations with them, which fell through last summer. Um, and as far as the outlook, you know, I, I think it at this point, it sort of hinges on whether their projections about the various 
products that they're counting on to overcome the patent cliff um, actually come true. And there's lots of moving pieces and questions. You know, um, they were excited about this RSV vaccine. Uh, the FDA advisors were maybe less excited about it than they were about the the competitor from GlaxoSmithKline. Um, uh, you know, uh, there's lots of big launches coming up, and I think people are going to be watching very closely how each of those launches go. Yeah, um, Andrew Barry wrote uh, bullishly about it uh, earlier this year, and uh, I don't think he's uh, his argument has changed um, no. much uh, since then. You know, he still still likes it. The stock still looks uh, relatively cheap, um, and it's uh, following the strategy that it laid out uh, pretty clearly, which he was uh, a fan of. Um, so uh, let me ask you. Uh, Earl yep. was also asking about uh, Gilead. Uh, do you have any thoughts there? Uh, you know, I think the stock has done so far this year what the other uh, uh, large, uh, larger pharma and biotech stocks have done. I think it's down like eight percent. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I have like a broad thesis on Gilead. I think that they're doing interesting things in cancer, important things in HIV, and you know, the, I think the story of Gilead has been a long-term turnaround, and it seems like people are optimistic about it. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, just uh, looking at it. I used to cover uh, Gilead back when it was a, a market favorite in, uh, I think it was 2016. Um, mm. And, you know, when it, uh, it came up with that cure for, for hepatitis C and the, the stock just, you know, ran and ran and ran. And since then, um, it was kind of dead money for a, a long time. It, it fell pretty sharply and just stayed down. Um, I think the, the most, this is the first signs of life that we've seen from the stock really starting in October of, of last mm -hmm. year. Um, yep. and on these hopes that you mentioned, and I think that now it's, uh, people are looking, okay, we have these hopes. Let's see some of these hopes turn to reality. Yeah. Um, all right. And as a last question, um, this one may be for me, um, uh, Mahesh was asking about, uh, managed care stocks, which have sold off this year. Uh, they also had a strong performance last year. Um, do you think this is macro related? This is just about this rotation out of kind of the stocks that did well last year into stuff that didn't uh, this year, um, or do you think there's something else going on? Uh, you know, I, I, I it, it seems macro related to me, but you know, you, you just edited a piece by Jacob on Humana, right? I did. Um, Jacob, uh, it was a stock pick for us that ran this morning. Um, <laughs> part of what we liked about it is the pull off, um, mm -hmm. from the pull, the pullback that, uh, uh, the, the stock had dropped a lot this year. Um, some We think a lot of that is about this uh, rotation out of uh, kind of the safer stocks that had done well last year. Um, but also there's some issues around uh, Medicare Advantage pricing. Um, the, the price hike that came in for uh, 2024 that's been recommended by the CMS is just 1% 1 1 or so, maybe a little bit more. Uh, but it's okay. very low compared to previous ones. And that has spooked um, investors, though Humana has come out and said that, you know what, they think they're going to be just fine, even if it mm -hmm. does go up just a small amount. Um, so we actually think that that stock has done well. All these have pulled back. There's uh, lots to, to, to recommend them, I, I think. Um, I, I would chalk up most of the fears to this kind of macro uh, situation that we're in. Um, yeah. We'll have to wait and see how it plays out. Interesting. Um, okay, let's see. There may be a last uh, uh, question or two. I'm going to just throw these at you. Um, Steve wanted to know, uh, what's the outlook on the next COVID vaccine? Uh, my understanding is that there, there's an, they're aiming for a, um, a, new, a new booster in the fall. Uh, so it'll be similar to the flu vaccine schedule. Um, 
Uh, so the FDA is going to tell the vaccine makers at some point in the spring what they want the strain makeup of the new booster to be, and then they will um, make that over the summer and roll it out in the fall. That's my understanding of the plan. And then uh, Tomas uh, wants to know if you have any thoughts on gene therapy companies like EXA and CRISPR. Uh, not, nothing, nothing sharp to say right now. I mean, uh, you know, the biotech in general, uh, not had a great year, but I don't have anything specific to say about them. Okay, great. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for being here, Josh. And thank you to the audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow for discussion on gasoline prices. Gas prices are expected to rise, but a repeat of last year's spring and summertime surge isn't in the cards. Denton Sinkingrana and Tom Closa senior oil analyst at Opus will offer a view from inside the market and forecast the price drivers, uh, the, the prices drivers can expect to pay at the pump. So thank you again for listening. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.